Appendix 3 of The Poverty of Philosophy by Karl Marx, translated by Harry Quelch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada. Appendix 3. 1. Free Trade. Footnote. The speech on free exchange by Marx is reproduced textually from the original pamphlet published in Brussels in 1848, and which has become so rare that we know of no other copy than that of Engels, from which the German, English, Italian, and Russian translations, which appeared later, have been made. Note by the editor of the French edition, 1896. End of footnote. A speech delivered before the Democratic Association of Brussels at its public meeting, January 9th, 1848, by Karl Marx. Gentlemen, the repeal of the Corn Laws in England is the greatest triumph of free trade in the 19th century. In every country where manufacturers speak of free trade, they have in mind chiefly free trade in corn or raw material generally. To burden foreign corn with protective duties is infamous. It is to speculate on the hunger of the people. Cheap food, high wages, for this alone the English free traders have spent millions, and their enthusiasm has already infected their continental brethren. And generally speaking, all those who advocate free trade do so in the interests of the working class. But, strange to say, the people for whom cheap food is to be procured at all costs are very ungrateful. Cheap food has a bad repute in England as cheap government has in France. The people see in these self-sacrificing gentlemen, in Bowring, Bright, and Co., their worst enemies, and the most shameless hypocrites. Everyone knows that in England the struggle between liberals and democrats takes the name of the struggle between free traders and chartists. Let us see how the English free traders have proved to the people the good intentions that animate them. That is what they said to the factory hands. Quote, the duty on corn is a tax upon wages. This tax you pay to the landlords, those medieval aristocrats. If your position is a wretched one, it is so only on account of the high price of the most indispensable articles of food. End quote. The workers in turn asked of the manufacturers, quote, How is it that, in the course of the last thirty years, while our commerce and manufacture has immensely increased, our wages have fallen far more rapidly, in proportion, than the price of corn has gone up? The tax which you say we pay the landlords is scarcely three pence a week per worker. And yet the wages on the handloom weaver fell between 1815 and 1843 from 28 sous per week to 5 sous, and the wages of the power loom weavers between 1823 and 1843 from 20 sous per week to 8 sous. And during the whole of that time, the portion of the tax which you say we pay to the landlord has never exceeded 3 pence, and then, in the year 1834, when tell us? You said, if you are poor, it is only because you tell us. You said, if you are poor, it is only because you have too many children, and your marriages are more productive than your labor. These are the very words you spoke to us, and you set about making new poor laws, and building workhouses, those bastilles of the proletariat, end quote. To this manufacturers replied, quote, you are right, worthy laborers. It is not the price of corn alone, but competition of the hands among themselves as well, which determine wages. But just bear in mind the circumstances that our soil consists of nothing but rock and sandbanks. You surely do not imagine that corn can be grown in flower pots. Therefore, if, instead of wasting our labor and capital upon a thoroughly sterile soil, 
we were to give up agriculture and devote ourselves exclusively to commerce and manufacture, all Europe would abandon its factories, and England would form one huge factory town, with the whole of the rest of Europe for its agricultural districts. End quote. While thus haranguing his own working men, the manufacturer is interrogated by the small tradesmen, who exclaim, quote, If we repeal the corn laws, we shall indeed ruin agriculture, but for all that, we shall not compel other nations to give up their own factories and buy our goods. What will the consequences be? I lose my customers in the country, and the home market is destroyed. End quote. The manufacturer turns his back upon the workingmen and replies to the shopkeeper, quote, As to that, you leave it to us. Once rid of the duty on corn, we shall import cheaper corn from abroad. Then we shall reduce wages at the very time when they are rising in the countries where we get our corn. Thus, in addition to the advantages which we already enjoy, we shall have lower wages, and with all these advantages we shall easily force the continent to buy of us. But now the farmers and agricultural laborers join in the discussion. Quote, and what, pray, is to become of us? Are we to help in passing a sentence of death upon agriculture when we get our living by it? Are we to let the soil be tarred from beneath our feet? End quote. For all answer, the Anti-Corn Law League contented itself with offering prizes for the three best essays upon the wholesome influence of the repeal of the Corn Laws on English agriculture. These prizes were carried off by Messrs. Hope, Morse, and Gregg, whose essays were distributed by thousands throughout the agricultural districts. One of the prize essayists devotes himself to proving that neither the tenant farmer nor the agricultural laborer would lose by the repeal of the Corn Laws and that the landlord alone would lose. Quote, the English tenant farmer, he exclaims, need not fear repeal, because no other country can produce such good corn so cheaply as England. Thus, even if the price of corn fell, it would not hurt you, because this fall would only affect rent, which would go down, while the profit of capital and the wages of labor would remain stationary. End quote. The second prize essayist, Mr. Morse, maintains, on the contrary, that the price of corn will rise in consequence of repeal. He is at infinite pains to prove that protective duties have never been able to secure a remunerative price for corn. In support of his assertion, he quotes the fact that, whenever foreign corn has been imported, the price of corn in England has gone up considerably, and that when little corn has been imported, the price is falling greatly. This prize winner forgets that the importation was not the cause of the high price, but that the high price was the cause of the importation. In direct contradiction of his colleague, he asserts that every rise in the price of corn is profitable to both the tenant farmer and laborer, but does not benefit the landlord. The third prize essayist, Mr. Gregg, who is a large manufacturer and whose work is addressed to the large tenant farmers could not afford to echo such silly stuff his language is more scientific he admits that the corn laws can increase rent only by increasing the price of corn and that they can raise the price of corn only by inducing the investment of capital upon land of inferior quality and this is a perfectly natural explanation in proportion as population increases it inevitably follows if foreign corn cannot be imported, that less fruitful soil must be called into requisition, the cultivation of which involves more expense, and the product of which is consequently dearer. There being a demand for all the corn thus produced, it will all be sold. 
the price for all of it will of necessity be determined by the price of the product of the inferior soil the difference between this price and the cost of production upon soil of better quality constitutes the rent paid for the use of the better soil if therefore in consequence of the repeal of the corn laws the price of corn falls and if as a matter of course rent falls with it it is because inferior soil will no longer be cultivated thus the reduction of rent must inevitably ruin a number of the tenant farmers these remarks are necessary in order to make mr gregg's language comprehensible Quote, the small farmers he says who cannot support themselves by agriculture must take refuge in manufacture as to the large tenant farmers they cannot fail to profit by the arrangement either the landlord will be obliged to sell them their land very cheap or leases will be made out for very long periods this will enable tenant farmers to invest more capital in their farms to use agricultural machinery on a larger scale and to save manual labor which will moreover be cheaper on account of the general fall in wages the immediate consequence of the repeal of the corn laws dr bowring conferred upon all these arguments the consecration of religion by exclaiming at the public meeting quote, jesus christ is free trade and free trade is jesus christ End quote. it may be easily understood that all this cant was not calculated to make cheap bread tasteful to working men besides how should the working men understand the sudden philanthropy of the manufacturers the very men who were still busy fighting against the ten hours bill which was to reduce the working day of the mill hands from twelve hours to ten to give you an idea of the philanthropy of these manufacturers i would remind you of the factory regulations in force in all their mills every manufacturer has for his own special use a regular penal code by means of which fines are inflicted for every voluntary or involuntary offence for instance the operative pays so much when he has the misfortune to sit down on a chair or whisper or speak or laugh if he is a few moments late if any part of a machine breaks or if he turns out work of an inferior quality etc the fines are always greater than the damage really done by the workman and to give the working man every opportunity for incurring fines the factory clock is set forward and he is given bad material to make into good stuff an overseer unskilful in multiplying infractions of rules is soon discharged you see gentlemen this private legislation is enacted for the especial purpose of creating such infractions and infractions are manufactured for the purpose of making money thus the manufacturer uses every means of reducing the nominal wage and even profiting by accidents over which the workers have no control and these manufacturers are the same philanthropists who have tried to persuade the workers that they were capable of going to immense expense for the sole and express purpose of improving the condition of those same workingmen on the one hand they nibble at the workers wages in the meanest way by means of factory regulations and on the other they are prepared to make the greatest sacrifices to raise those wages by means of the anti-corn law league they build great palaces at immense expense in which the league takes up its official residence they send an army of missionaries to all corners of england to preach the gospel of free trade they print and distribute gratis thousands of pamphlets to enlighten the working man upon his own interests they spend enormous sums to buy over the press to their side they organize a vast administrative system for the conduct of the free trade movement 
and bestow all the wealth of their eloquence upon public meetings it was at one of these meetings that a working man exclaimed boldly quote, if the landlords were to sell our bones you manufacturers would be the first to buy them and to put them through the mill and make flour of them End quote. the english workingmen have appreciated to the fullest extent the significance of the struggle between the lords of the land and of capital they know very well that the price of bread was to be reduced in order to reduce wages and that the profit of capital would rise in proportion as rent fell ricardo the apostle of the english free traders the leading economist of our century entirely agrees with the workers upon this point in his celebrated work upon political economy he says quote, if instead of growing our own corn we discover a new market from which we can supply ourselves at a cheaper price wages will fall and profits rise the fall in the price of agricultural produce reduces the wages not only of the labor employed in cultivating the soil but also of all those employed in commerce or manufacture end quote. and do not believe gentlemen that it is the matter of indifference to the working man whether he receives only four francs on account of corn being cheaper when he has received five francs before have not his wages always fallen in comparison with profit and is it not clear that his social position has grown worse as compared with that of the capitalist beside which he loses actually so long as the price of corn was higher and wages were also higher a small saving in the consumption of bread sufficed to procure him other enjoyments but as soon as bread is cheap and wages are therefore low he can save almost nothing on bread for the purchase of other articles the english workingmen have shown the english free traders that they are not the dupes of their illusions or of their lies and if in spite of this the workers have made common cause with the manufacturers against the landlords it is for the purpose of destroying the last remnant of feudalism that henceforth they may have only one enemy to deal with the workers have not miscalculated for the landlords in order to revenge themselves upon the manufacturers have made common cause with the workers to carry the ten hours bill which the latter has been vainly demanding for thirty years and which was passed immediately after the repeal of the corn laws dr bowring at the congress of economists drew from his pocket a long list to show how many head of cattle how much ham bacon poultry etc is imported into england to be consumed as he asserted by the workers he unfortunately forgot to state that at the same time the workers of manchester and other factory towns were thrown out of work by the beginning of the crisis as a matter of principle in political economy the figures of a single year must never be taken as the basis for formulating general laws we must always take the average from six to seven years a period during which modern industry passes through the successive phases of prosperity overproduction crisis thus completing the inevitable cycle doubtless if the price of all commodities falls and this is the necessary consequence of free trade i can buy far more for a franc than before and the working man's franc is as good as any other man's therefore free trade must be advantageous to the working man there is only one little difficulty in this namely that the workman before he exchanges his franc for other commodities has first exchanged his labor for the money of the capitalist if in this exchange he always receives the said franc while the price of the other commodities fell he would always be the gainer by such a bargain the difficulty does not lie in proving that the price of all commodities falling more commodities can be bought for the same sum of money 
Economists always take the price of labor at the moment of its exchange with other commodities and altogether ignore the moment at which labor accomplishes its own exchange with capital, when it costs less to set in motion the machinery which produces commodities then the things necessary for the maintenance of this machine called the workmen will also cost less if all commodities are cheaper labor which is a commodity too will also fall in price and we shall see later that this commodity labor will fall far lower in proportion than all other commodities if the working man still pins his faith to the arguments of the economists he will find one fine morning that the franc has dwindled in his pocket and that he has only five sous left thereupon the economist will tell you quote, we admit that competition among the workers will certainly not be lessened under free trade and will very soon bring wages into harmony with the low price of commodities but on the other hand the low price of commodities will increase consumption the larger consumption will increase production which will in turn necessitate a larger demand for labor and this larger demand will be followed by a rise in wages Quote, the whole argument amounts to this free trade increases productive forces when manufacturers keep advancing when wealth when the productive forces when in a word productive capital increases the demand for labor the price of labor and consequently the rate of wages rise also End quote. the most favorable condition for the working man is the growth of capital this must be admitted when capital remains stationary commerce and manufacture are not merely stationary but decline and in this case the workman is the first victim he will suffer before the capitalist and in the case of the growth of capital under the circumstances which as we have said are the best for the workingman what will be his lot he will suffer just the same the growth of capital implies the accumulation and the concentration of capital the centralization involves a greater division of labor and a greater use of machinery the greater division of labor destroys the especial skill of the laborer and by putting in the place of this skilled work labor which anyone can perform it increases competition among the workers this competition becomes more fierce as the division of labor enables a single man to do the work of three machinery accomplishes the same result on a much larger scale the accumulation of productive capital forces the industrial capitalist to work with constantly increasing means of production ruins the small manufacturer and throws him into the ranks of the proletariat then the rate of interest falling in proportion as capital accumulates the people of small means and retired tradespeople who can no longer live upon their small incomes will be forced to look out for some business again and ultimately to swell the number of proletarians finally the more productive capital grows the more it is compelled to produce for a market whose requirements it does not know the more supply tries to force demand and consequently crisis increases in frequency and in intensity but every crisis in turn hastens the concentration of capital adds to the proletariat thus as productive capital grows competition among the workers grows too and grows in a far greater proportion the reward of labor is less for all and the burden of labor is increased for at least some of them in eighteen twenty nine there were in manchester one thousand eighty eight cotton spinners employed in thirty six factories in eighteen forty one there were but four hundred and forty eight and they tended fifty five thousand three hundred and fifty three more spindles than the one thousand eighty eight spinners did in eighteen twenty nine 
If manual labor had increased in the same proportion as productive force, the number of spinners ought to have risen to 1,848. Improved machinery had, therefore, deprived 1,100 workers of employment. We know beforehand the reply of the economists. The people thus thrown out of work will find other kinds of employment. Dr. Bowring did not fail to reproduce this argument at the Congress of Economists, but neither did he fail to refute himself. In 1833, Dr. Bowring made a speech in the House of Commons upon the 50,000 hand-loom weavers of London, who have been starving without being able to find that new kind of employment which the free traders hold out to them in the distance. I will give the most striking portion of the speech of Mr. Bowring. Quote, the misery of the hand-loom weavers, he says, is the inevitable fate of all kinds of labor which are easily acquired, and which may, at any moment, be replaced by less costly means. As in these cases competition amongst the workpeople is very great, the slightest falling off in demand brings on a crisis. The hand-loom weavers are, in a certain sense, placed on the verge of human existence. One step further, and that existence becomes impossible. The slightest shock is sufficient to throw them on the road to ruin. By more and more superseding manual labor, the progress of mechanical science must result, during the period of transition, in much temporary suffering. National well-being cannot be bought except at the price of some individual evils. The advance of industry is achieved at the expense of those who lag behind, and of all discoveries that of the power-loom weighs most heavily upon the hand-loom weavers. In a great many articles formerly made by hand, the weaver has been completely ousted, but he is sure to be beaten in a good many more stuffs that are now made by hand. End quote. Further on, he says, quote, I hold in my hand a correspondence of the Governor General with the East India Company. This correspondence is concerning the weavers of the Dhaka district. The Governor says in his letter, A few years ago, the East India Company received from six to eight million pieces of calico woven upon the looms of the country. The demand fell off gradually and was reduced to about a million pieces. At this moment, it has almost entirely ceased. Moreover, in 1800, North America received from India nearly 800,000 pieces of cotton goods. In 1830, it did not take even 4,000. Finally, in 1800, a million pieces were shipped to Portugal. In 1830, Portugal did not receive above 20,000. The reports on the distress of the Indian weavers are terrible. And what is the origin of that distress? The presence on the market of English manufacturers, the production of the same article by means of the power loom. A great number of the weavers died of starvation. The remainder has gone over to other employment, and chiefly to field labor. Not to be able to change employment amounted to a sentence of death. And at this moment, the Dhaka district is crammed with English yarns and peace goods. The Dhaka muslin, renowned all over the world for its beauty and firm texture, has also been eclipsed by the competition of English machinery. In the whole history of commerce, it would, perhaps, be difficult to find suffering equal to what these whole classes in India had to submit to. End quote. Mr. Bowring's speech is the more remarkable because the facts quoted by him are correct, and the phrases with which he seeks to palliate them are characterized by the hypocrisy common to all free trade discourses. 
He represents the workers as means of production, which must be superseded by less expensive means of production, pretends to see in the labor of which he speaks a wholly exceptional kind of labor, and in the machine, which has crushed out the weavers, an equally exceptional kind of machine. He forgets that there is no kind of manual labor which may not any day share the fate of the handloom weavers. Quote, the constant aim and tendency of every improvement of mechanism is indeed to do entirely without the labor of men, or to reduce its price, by superseding the labor of the adult males by that of women and children, or the work of the skilled by that of the unskilled workmen. In most of the throstle mills, spinning is now entirely done by girls of sixteen years and less. The introduction of the self-acting mule has caused the discharge of most of the adult male spinners, while the children and young persons have been kept on, end quote. The above words of the most enthusiastic of free traders, Dr. Ure, are calculated to complete the confessions of Dr. Bowring. Mr. Bowring speaks of certain individual evils and, at the same time, says that these individual evils destroy whole classes. He speaks of the temporary sufferings during a transition period and does not deny that these temporary evils have implied for the majority the transition from life to death, and for the rest a transition from a better to a worse condition. When he asserts, farther on, that the sufferings of the working class are inseparable from the progress of industry and are necessary to the prosperity of the nation, he simply says that the prosperity of the bourgeois class involves, as a necessary condition, the suffering of the laboring class. All the comfort which Mr. Bowring offers the workers who perish, and, indeed, the whole doctrine of compensation which the free traders propound, amounts to this. You thousands of workers who are perishing do not despair. You can die with an easy conscience. Your class will not perish. It will always be numerous enough for the capitalist class to decimate it without fear of annihilating it. Besides, how could capital be usefully applied if it did not take care to keep up its exploitable material, i.e., the workingman, to be exploited over and over again? But then, why propound as a problem still to be solved the question? What influence will the adoption of free trade have upon the condition of the working class? All the laws formulated by the political economists from Kesney to Ricardo have been based upon the hypothesis that the trammels, which still interfere with commercial freedom, have disappeared. These laws are confirmed in proportion as free trade is adopted. The first of these laws is that competition reduces the price of every commodity to the minimum cost of production. Thus, the minimum wage is the natural price of labor. And what is the minimum of wages? Just so much as is required for production of the articles absolutely necessary for the maintenance of the worker, and for the continued existence, more or less poorly, of his class. But do not imagine that the worker receives only this minimum wage, and still less that he always receives it. No, according to this law, the working class will sometimes be more fortunate, will sometimes receive something above the minimum, but this surplus will merely make up for the deficit which they will have received below the minimum in times of industrial depression. That is to say that within a given time, which recurs periodically in the cycle, which commerce and industry describe, while passing through the successive phases of prosperity, overproduction, stagnation, and crisis, when reckoning all that the working class has had above and below mere necessaries, we shall see that, after all, they have received neither more nor less than the minimum, i.e., 
the working class will have maintained itself as a class after enduring any amount of misery and misfortune, and after leaving many corpses upon the industrial battlefield. But what of it? The class will still exist, nay, more, it will have increased. But this is not all. The progress of industry creates less and less expensive means of subsistence. Thus spirits have taken the place of beer, cotton that of wool and linen, and potatoes that of bread. Thus, as means are constantly being found for the maintenance of labor on cheaper and more wretched food, the minimum of wages is constantly sinking. If these wages began by letting the man work to live, they end by forcing him to live the life of a machine. His existence has no other value than that of simple productive force, and the capitalist treats him accordingly. This law of the commodity labor of the minimum of wages will be confirmed in proportion as the supposition of the economists, free trade, becomes an actual fact. Thus, of two things one, either we must reject all political economy based upon the assumption of free trade, or we must admit that under the same free trade, the whole severity of the economic laws will fall upon the worker. To sum up, what is free trade under the present conditions of society? Freedom of capital. When you have torn down the few national barriers which still restrict the free development of capital, you will merely have given it complete freedom of action. So long as the relation of wage labor to capital is permitted to exist, no matter how favorable the conditions under which you accomplish the exchange of commodities, there will always be a class which exploits and a class which is exploited. It is really difficult to understand the presumption of the free traders who imagine that the more advantageous application of capital will abolish the antagonism between industrial capitalists and wage workers. On the contrary, the only result will be that the antagonism of these two classes will stand out more clearly. Let us assume for a moment that there are no more corn laws or national and municipal import duties that in a world all the accidental circumstances which today the working man may look upon as a cause of his miserable condition have vanished, and we shall have removed so many curtains that hide from his eyes his real enemy. He will see that capital released from all trammels will make him no less a slave than capital trammeled by import duties. Gentlemen, do not be deluded by the abstract word liberty. Whose liberty? Not the liberty of one individual in relation to another, but the liberty of capital to crush the worker. Why should you desire farther to sanction unlimited competition with this idea of freedom, when the idea of freedom itself is only the product of a social condition based upon free competition? We have shown what sort of fraternity free trade begets between the different classes of one and the same nation. The fraternity which free trade would establish between the nations of the earth would not be more real. To call cosmopolitan exploitation universal brotherhood is an idea that could only be engendered in the brain of the bourgeoisie. Every one of the destructive phenomena which unlimited competition gives rise to within any one nation is reproduced in more gigantic proportions in the market of the world. We need not pause any longer upon free trade sophisms on this subject, which are worth just as much as the arguments of our prize essayists Messrs. Hope, Morse, and Gregg. For instance, we are told that free trade would create an international division of labor, and thereby give to each country those branches of production most in harmony with its natural advantages. You believe, perhaps, gentlemen, that the production of coffee and sugar is the natural destiny of the West Indies. Two centuries ago, nature, 
which does not trouble itself about commerce, had planted neither sugarcane nor coffee trees there, and it may be that in less than half a century you will find there neither coffee nor sugar for the East Indies, by means of cheaper production, have already successfully broken down this so-called natural destiny of the West Indies. And the West Indies, with their natural wealth, are as heavy a burden for England as the weavers of Dhaka, who also were destined from the beginning of time to weave by hand. One other circumstance must not be forgotten, namely, that, just as everything has become a monopoly, there are also nowadays some branches of industry which prevail over all others, and secure to the nations which especially foster them the command of the world market. Thus, in the commerce of the world, cotton alone has much greater commercial importance than all the other raw materials used in the manufacture of clothing. It is indeed ridiculous for the free traders to refer to the few specialties in each branch of industry, throwing them into the scales against the products used in everyday consumption, and produced more cheaply in those countries in which manufacture is most highly developed. If the free traders cannot understand how one nation can grow rich at the expense of another, we need not wonder, since these same gentlemen also refuse to understand how in the same country one class can enrich itself at the expense of another. Do not imagine, gentlemen, that in criticizing freedom of commerce we have the least intention of defending protection. One may be opposed to constitutionalism without being in favor of absolutism. Moreover, the protective system is nothing but a means of establishing manufacture upon a large scale in any given country, that is to say, of making it dependent upon the market of the world, and from the moment that dependence upon the market of the world is established, there is more or less dependence upon free trade too. Besides this, the protective system helps to develop free competition within a nation. Hence, we see that in countries where the bourgeoisie is beginning to make itself felt as a class, in Germany, for example, it makes great efforts to obtain protective duties. They serve the bourgeoisie as a weapon against feudalism and absolute monarchy, as a means for the concentration of its own powers for the realization of free trade within the country. But generally speaking, the free trade system is destructive. It breaks up old nationalities and carries the antagonism between proletariat and bourgeoisie to the uttermost point. In a word, the system of commercial freedom hastens the social revolution. In this revolutionary sense alone, gentlemen, I am in favor of free trade. The End End of Appendix 3 Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada End of the Poverty of Philosophy by Karl Marx Translated by Harry Quelch